Welcome back to another episode of Global Get Down with myself, Julian. Myself, Roman. And me, Hannah. And on today's episode, we're looking at the first episode of our current relations, current events segment regarding the coronavirus, disease and cooperation. In this episode, we will start with a short introduction into the origins and phases of the coronavirus. We will then feature an interview with Professor Eves Tebergen. Of, uh, he's a professor at UBC of political science, a faculty associate in the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, and a director of the Institute of Asian Research, co-director of the Center of Japanese Research, and he is uh, specializing in East Asian comparative political economy and international political economy. After our interview with Eves, we will proceed to unpack and offer our analysis a little bit. Hi, so this is Roman here. I'm just going to briefly mention the origins of the coronavirus. So the coronavirus actually came from the same pathogen family as SARS, which also came from bats and led to a worldwide epidemic from 2002 to 2003, spreading to about 8,000 people and killing 10% of them. Now, bats harbor viruses in their digestive tracts, just like we do. And this is where the coronavirus derives from. It is speculated that the virus might have spread through other animals first before spreading to humans. So essentially, at first, it would have came from bats, then went to some sort of uh, to some other animals and then eventually made its way uh, to humans. The virus can be broken down into three distinct stages. In December, the virus was discovered. In this stage, China was forthcoming. They coded the virus and shared it within two weeks of the very first outbreak, which allowed scientists to test the sequence very quickly around the world. During the second stage in January, China encountered a scandal when a doctor was accused of spreading false information. In the third stage, the central government was much more forthcoming, letting foreign countries come in and evacuating foreigners. Now we'll be moving into the interview with Professor Eves. Hi, this is Roman. And this is Hannah. And today we have with us special guest, political science professor Eves Tebergen. Good afternoon. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the questions. All right, so my first question for you, uh, Professor Tebergen, is what is the impact of the media's portrayal of global interconnectedness on either helping coordinate an effective international response or making it more difficult by fostering populist and nationalist sentiments? Yeah, this is a great question. I'll start by correcting for the record that I'm speaking here not as uh, executive director of China Council, but as a professor of political science, uh, which is my primary role, my primary day job. Uh, and I teach Chinese politics, so I follow those issues very, very closely. Uh, so it's true that there is uh, a sense of unprecedented crisis and almost panic and all kind of reflexes going on with this coronavirus crisis. Um, we see, so of course, in itself, it's a very unusual crisis. It's a very sneaky virus, you know, that's dormant for many days in people and then shows up. Uh, for many people, it, it doesn't have impact. For some, it has big impact. Uh, so it creates all that uncertainty about it. But it's also uh, the first sort of major uh, epidemic at the time of acute globalization. This is the most globalized we have ever been. Uh, 
even more so than 2003 with uh, SARS. So we have flights everywhere. We have integrated supply chains and global economy and all this. Uh, also, it's the first major health crisis of the social media time. So for the first time, we have an explosion of social media reaction and portrayals, which often gets way ahead in terms of rumors, way ahead of truths and facts and uh, you know, statements and research, medical research. So we have a, a lot going on here. And in that context of volatility and uncertainty and unknown and novelty, uh, what we see in terms of reaction, we see some portrayal, of course, uh, you know, we have seen racist portrayals associating the virus with a particular group. We see uh, lo lots of fear reaction. We see people stocking up on food and panicking. Uh, we see criticism, of course, of globalization. Uh, and then there's a lot of domestic movements everywhere. You know, people questioning governments uh, at various scales. There's questioning in Korea, questioning in Japan, questioning, there was questioning in Hong Kong and Singapore. It's feeding everywhere. The EU now, the open border in the EU is being questioned. And then now we have a stock market crash, right? Again, today, the stock market went down 4.2%. That's more than 10, 12% in a week. So there's a lot going on and a lot of emotions in the reactions. Uh, so just to go off of that, of course, the coronavirus is a biological force that is currently leading to global economic downturn. And my question is, what role do you think will biological forces play in the future, especially pertaining to the global economy? So, yeah, what it is, it's a health crisis, uh, an epidemic that's uh, becoming a systemic risk affecting globalization and global integration and connectivity. But it's not un unexpected, right? There, you know, for those like me who teach global governance and systemic risk and the like, uh, you know, we do rankings of issues. You know, the, the WEF, World Economic Forum, does those rankings. And... Uh, Global pandemics is always seen as one top 10 potential disruptors in the global, uh, global economy. Uh, there was a report in November from uh, the World Health Organization uh, saying that there would be sooner or later a major epidemic, probably a flu like the Spanish flu of 1919, uh, and we were not prepared for it. Uh, because we, we haven't built enough all the domestic level organizations and we don't have a strong enough global coordination mechanism. Uh, so what it reveals is there's a bit of a mismatch between the speed of global economic integration on the one hand, global markets, global connectivity, uh, flights everywhere, and global vacations, all the global supply chain on one hand, and then our capacity to cope with systemic shocks and risks like a global health crisis on the other hand. Uh, and so for the first time, we, you know, we, we are affected indeed in our global connectivity by a health crisis, but it was not unexpected. We will have other uh, shocks probably coming up, like environmental shocks and other types. The final thing to say is that the timing is actually also difficult because we were really entering a period of crisis of globalization, a peaking. Our trade was sort of uh, slowing down, almost declining. We have a trade war between U.S. and China. We have a lot of acrimony between countries at this moment, lack of ability to work together because everyone is uh, fighting with everybody. Uh, and also we have uh, a, a situation of peak stock market. Everybody expected a correction sooner or later. Uh, so they were, there's a sense that something is due anyway. So I think we see some of that overreaction going on, right? Oh, this is it. This is the shock that we all expected. Uh, and people read into it maybe more than just the shock itself. 
Going off of that, what do you think is the role of the U.S. stepping out of their imperative position in the international liberal order in stopping an effective international coordinated response to this, especially since the U.S. imposed a travel ban against the WHO's recommendation? Virus. Yeah, this is this is a great question. So there's two aspects to it. One is uh, you know, the uh, the quality of global coordination, the global order, but the other part is just the China-U.S. relationship. Uh, and I think the second was the most critical uh, because the, sta the state of relationship is so dire right now and there is an escalating cycle of, uh, you know, tit-for-tat strategic reactions. And people in the U.S., frankly, calling for a Cold War, for decoupling, for uh, seeing China as the ultimate threat right, that could destroy civilization, uh, and China being very reactive to this, very fearful, always afraid that the uh, U.S. will try to find a way to foment a revolution or destroy the, ch the Chinese economy. So there's a lot of mistrust. And so that has affected the cooperation because uh, in terms of health capacity, the U.S. has probably still the best health uh, research and health capacity. The U.S. CDC, the, uh, the Disease Control uh, Commission, is very, very strong. Uh, but initially, China was very reluctant to have any U.S. participation in WHO uh, visits, uh, very, very fearful of the U.S. using this to hurt China. And so that has slowed international cooperation. Uh, for a crisis like this, the ground zero is U.S.-China cooperation to uh, really share data, uh, health data, to share information, and to work together on solving it in terms of health uh, solutions. So that's the biggest damage. The second damage is maybe indeed that the U.S. did not seek to cooperate with WHO, uh, took its own strong reactions, uh, some of which had effect on us Canada because, for example, by putting a, a ban of stopping all the flights and putting a 14-day quarantine, while Canada keeps some flights open, that meant that many, many people going to the U.S. stayed 14 days in Canada, uh, and that created a sort of mini panic among the Chinese community in Canada <laughs> that people were, that were being sick here. Uh, so that, you know, in the end, Canada was holding the bag a little bit. Um, so, yes, it, the bottom line is the fact that we have a weaker U.S. involvement despite its enormous capacity in things like WTO and common coordination. Uh, the reaction by the global community is weaker. By, as a so how does China's response to the coronavirus differ from its response to SARS? Uh, what has shifted internationally or domestically to create a different response from them? Okay, that's pretty simple. There are three big differences. Uh, the first one is the virus itself. Uh, it's a more contagious virus and a sneakier virus, but also a less deadly virus. So it spreads faster, uh, it's dormant for you know, 10, 12, 14 days, and then 82% of patients have no reaction. Uh, those factors make it spread much faster and much further than SARS, which was much more aggressive, faster, less uh, contagious, and yet would kill 10%. Uh, this one kills m maybe 1%. You know, the data so far shows 2.2, but uh, we know that we underestimate the number of people affected, so the denominator will be much bigger in the end. Uh, that's the first difference. The second is the fact that China is much more interconnected, maybe four times more we evaluate this, four times more flights, international flights, and also four times more uh, inter, uh, in internal uh, transport, traffic, high-speed train, all this uh, within China than in 2003. So there is four times more propagation, right, as soon as it got out of Wuhan. Uh, and then finally, we are much more interconnected, much more globalized, 
uh, and China is now at the heart of all global supply chains. So within a week of Wuhan stopping, you had the Hyundai car company stopping in Korea, for example, and all kinds of things being affected. The global economy is falling. Uh, an additional factor is the first social media crisis. So SARS was before social media. Uh, in this case, you had uh, the Chinese community, the Chinese government essentially ha orchestrating uh, the quarantine or you know, staying at home of 500 to 700 million people during Chinese New Year holiday that were extended and having nothing to do except do social media. So you had a deluge of social media, some of which is full of emotions and, and rumors. And you had groups, social media groups on WeChat splitting over this because some were saying we need to follow data and others were saying, no, they there's many, many, many dead. It must be tens of thousands of dead. That's why we have a ghost uh, city. Uh, so all kind of emotions, right? And this, the social media side really uh, explodes the emotions. Uh, and maybe as humanity, we're immature yet with social media. Uh, this is a new power that we never had before, but we're not very good at controlling emotions on social media. So now just focusing on China, what's interesting to look here is their response to the coronavirus, especially the censorship. Of course, there's the story of the whistleblower doctor who discovered information about the coronavirus in late December, yet the Chinese government accused him of making false claims and disrupting the social order. So my question to you is, why do you think China is deciding to censor all this information? So as far as we know, right, they... There's about three steps in the Chinese government reaction to the crisis. Uh, the first and the third are not bad. The second was the problem. Uh, the first step was actually a purely uh, professional reaction where doctors in December that started to identify the, the, the patients and the new virus, uh, not just Dr. Li, but others, very quickly worked on sequencing the genome. And by very early January, uh, 7 to 10, uh, the genome sequence and uh, the formula for the test were, were shared globally. So the entire hospital community and uh, medical community had access to that vi virus sequencing early January. So that's the positive, which is essentially the professionalization of the medical community in China and its connection to the world, right? And in fact, having connection to universities like ours allows that. To the second step was what then happened when the data came out uh, several steps, right, from mid-December, the December 31st with Dr. Li Wenliang and seven other doctors, and then more came out early January. What we know is the local government in Wuhan decided to shut it down. Uh, in the particular case of uh, Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, he actually didn't go public with it. All he did is inform his colleagues in, a, in an internal group. Uh, but then some colleagues shared with the hospital management, and the hospital management uh, told him, uh, watch out, this is, uh, this is delicate. Uh, but then somewhat someone there leaked it to the police. And then by January 3rd, the police uh, called him up for tea and made him sign a warning letter saying uh, that he won't spread rumors. So he had to promise, no, I won't. Yes, I understand. This is serious. And that became, by the way, that was echoed later in social media, those two sentences. No, I won't. Yes, I can. <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't understand. Um, and and then they went further than that, right? They had the they had the convening of their part the the uh, the parliament of Wuhan uh, from January seven for three four days. They wanted peace around it. This is a once in a year event. Though. It's called Yanghui. They wanted everything to be quiet, so they wanted order. So they shut down all information during that time. They said everything is fine. And they even had a giant banquet with 40,000 families, which is over 100,000 people, on January 14, and they didn't want to cancel it. So essentially, they, it was partly the inertia of their bureaucracy, 
um, and partly the political decision to not uh, make it big, to think it would go away and to try to keep things happy, you know, focus on happy news that made them do that. Uh, and the turnaround, the third phase is January 20, when uh, the central government sends this famous doctor, uh, 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 who was the doctor from SARS, Dr. Joe, uh, Joe Nanshan, uh, and, he, uh, and he announces publicly on January 20 that there is human-to-human -human transmission. This is a serious virus. From that moment on, everything kicks into high gear, and so far, quite good transparency after January 20. And January 23rd, they do the blockade of uh, Wuhan. Uh, and then we just had, uh, two days ago, uh, a, a statement by the WHO team led by a Canadian, Dr. Bruce Hellward, who said that China probably saved hundreds of thousands of life, uh, at least of uh, patients, by uh, really blocking everything in Wuhan. But we do have those weeks, right, especially between December 31 and January 20, where that system failed. Uh, where the information was covered, and it's mostly bureaucratic inertia, the desire for political stability, and the local government's desire to keep their priorities happening. Just to wrap things up, a lot of focus on solving this virus has been on science and technology. I'm wondering what you think is the role and importance of scholars like you and political science and international relations scholarship in helping bring awareness to the importance of social science and the importance of thinking about cooperation in solving global issues like the coronavirus? Great questions. Um, so yeah, there's two ways to deal with crisis like this. There's the old middle-aged way where you quarantine entire cities and you bl black mark entire communities. Uh, and you essentially cut off a whole bunch of people and then you sacrifice a large per percentage of your population uh, in order to, to save the rest. Uh, but even then, that old way was possible in a way because there was so much interconnectivity, so little interconnectivity. So we were had fragmented societies, fragmented uh, economy. Uh, the, the, the other way, if you have an interconnected uh, world, if you have a globalized world, if people do travel, uh, and we are so con you know, connected in many, many ways. We also make so many experiments in all kinds of ways. Then the, the other way is to cooperate in solving problems. And so I think this, this is a moment where we, we cannot just old use old reflexes where out of fear, out of anger, out of panic, we just try to shut down, wall off certain people and, and try to pretend nothing happens. If we want to maintain an open world, an open, interconnected planet, if we want to keep having the, the, the way of life we have, including the material comfort, we, uh, we're going to have to pull forces together and do a better job at cooperating. It's the same story as climate change, same story with biodiversity protection, same story as protecting uh, you know, traditional knowledge that's almost being destroyed. Um, if we want to reach that new level of humanity where we are so rich, so interconnected, we have access to so many things, we have more awareness, more knowledge, we have to also improve the cooperation among us and we have to find a way to do it, to share information, uh, to not uh, block, to not discriminate, but by sharing, pulling science together and finding better institutional mechanism, we, humanity has the way to deal with things like that. But it's going to get worse where there is mistrust, where there is characterization of particular groups, uh, and there is the refusal to uh, pool resources and, and search for the common good. This is a case of public goods. Okay, um, we, we're going to have many more epidemics. Uh, we're going to have to work together to, uh, to be ready you know, at multiple levels 
rather than just close our eyes right and and ignore it all right that about wraps up our interview thank you so much for taking your time to interview with us professor eves pleasure being here this is julian and now we're going to segue into a little bit of discussion on the interview with professor eves and the first thing that I wanted to talk about that I find really interesting with regards to what he talked about was overreaction and social perception of the virus itself. So just to start us off, for me, what Yves, uh, Professor Yves kind of really stressed was how the nature of the virus has really evolved from back in the day where SARS was more or less very prevalent, but wasn't augmented to the same sense that is of coronavirus with social media, with WeChat groups in China, with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, a lot of social media platforms providing really differing perceptions of the virus itself. Um, when he talks about disinformation and mistrust with regards to that, I think that it really shows how, you know, the social media platforms nowadays are really shaping how people perceive these types of viruses the kind of hysteria and mass reactions people are having towards these viruses or coronavirus in itself. And it just really shows how integrated we are and how integrated uh, scientific phenomena, something that is almost a natural phenomenon such as a disease can be really given a whole new modality through that of uh, social media. Yeah, this is Roman. Um, just to kind of expand on that, like, yeah, I totally agree that I think the media is uh, overhyping this to a certain extent, and that's making a lot of people actually fear this virus uh, much more. Uh, of course, right now in the news, you're seeing still so many, so many new cases of, of the virus popping up in all these new countries, and you're starting to see statements like, "Oh, this is going to be like a worldwide epidemic." You know, there's been comparisons to the Spanish flu and whatnot, and I think, yeah, this is this is why the virus has become so prevalent and such a such a big topic right now in in the contemporary media just just because uh, the media is playing such a role now it's such a big role that of course it just it wasn't able to play maybe 20 years ago and of course social media definitely definitely has something to do with that yeah i agree with that i think that something else that uh professor eve said that was really interesting is that while this is a scientific phenomena, um, humans have so many scientific and technological capacities to deal with this virus, and we've created s technological platforms such as social media platforms, but we don't have the ability to cooperate effectively to respond to them because our inherent psychological biases through these platforms cause us to misinterpret information and generate unnecessary fear that stops us from actually generating an effective response. And I think that Something else that was interesting that uh, Professor Eves talked about was how this is just an example of a broader problem in the world of social media that's, you know, an example of one of humans' biggest technolo technological developments, but that stops us from creating effective social and political policy in response to a lot of our global issues. Yeah, for sure. This is Julian. In terms of how governments can try to effectively prevent this mass hysteria, what kind of approaches do you think are available in terms of regulating social media? We know for the Chinese regime, they have different ways of regulation and trying to reduce the amount of 
I guess, as they would say, um, myths about the, the virus itself from spreading. How do other governments go about kind of reducing the mass hysteria on social media regarding this kind of virus? What do you guys think? Well, I think it's really tricky because you don't want to censor media or speech too much or at all. Um, But at the same time, you want to make sure that people aren't getting in those kind of echo chambers where they're only hearing their own voices and their own thoughts. And it can kind of spiral into a lot of false information. And so I think that maybe what's important is to somehow create some sort of means where people on social media are forced to encounter new views or censor the amount that advertisements can tailor their ads to people's personal interests because I think that that personalization of media plays a lot into this dissemination of false information. Yeah, this is Roman. I think that's that's definitely a good idea. I think like obviously like right now and of course we we knew this from the Facebook controversy about a year or two back with uh, Mark Zuckerberg as well like websites like Facebook's uh, like Facebook like Instagram you know they they are using um they're using cookies to actually like you know uh find out what people are interested in and then as a result of that when they advertise or when they show you recommended pages or something like that they show you stuff that you probably would want to hear and as a result of that yeah absolutely I, I think that can uh that could really amplify and that could really distort some of the information about the virus uh as a result of that just because you're getting maybe news that could be could be misinterpreting the information out there the other thing that i think right now is censorship is definitely not an option it's been almost about like two months since the initial outbreak of the virus and right now i think everybody knows about it so censoring is is only is only futile right now um recently actually china decided to remove the mobile game plague inc from uh all app stores in China. Uh, essentially, what Plague Inc. is is a game where you create a pathogen where you try to annihilate the entire human population. I like for me, I didn't really see a point to that. It, I, I found it to be kind of unnecessary. But again, it, it, it's clear that China is trying uh, to somehow censor all this information, despite the fact that you know it, it, it's it's spread. Most people already are aware of it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think that uh, something that Professor Eves was talking about was how um, the role of the media in producing policy responses internationally and domestically. Um, How do you guys think that domestic governments can use the media or be aware of the limitations of the media to stop this virus from creating kind of inward turns or nationalist sentiments that might stop us from creating an effective international response. For sure. This is Julian, and kind of this was the second big thing I wanted or I drew from the interview itself as well was kind of global reactions and policy responses, and I think it's definitely really interconnected with social media and media. I think that, you know, The CDC, for example, in the United States, the Center for Disease Control, they use multiple platforms to disseminate information. They're giving a large unambiguous statement on February 25th regarding the virus that is meant to inform people about its nature and how it really, you know, is very pervasive 
in infecting people. It's something that, as Yves, Professor Yves said, is very dormant and is undetectable until people start being infected quite largely. And, you know, through these types of centers, such as the Centers of Disease Control, they're using Facebook, Twitter, they're using all these different platforms to reach people. And I think that social media in that sense is being used very effectively in terms of censoring and kind of preventing the spread of misinformation the government is a little bit more limited in a lot of Western democracies in terms of preventing that type of information from spreading, but making sure that there's adequate voicing of the true perceptions and the true experts are being able to give a voice to international fora, whether that be the CDC or various health ministries globally, is really important in terms of an effective policy response, I believe, uh, in order to counter such a virus. Yeah, absolutely. This is Roman. I I agree with Julian's statement there. I think, I think so far in the podcast we kind of lo- uh, looked at it in a more negative way, at least in terms of the media's portrayal and all of this. But of course, there are absolutely uh, benefits to it as well. Of course, without the media, we wouldn't have even known about this virus and wouldn't have been able to take, uh, you know, wouldn't have been prepared at all, and that might have led to an even further spread. Uh, so of course, uh, this uh, the media can can kind of play two roles. I think here it can either, you know, be positive in the sense that it could spread information about it and unbiased information, non-exaggerated information, you know, and and also spread information about who, how how to fight it, right? But at the same time, of course, it could also play a negative role where it decides to uh, misinterpret, uh, uh, manipulate information make it uh, make it fit some sort of agenda of course there's been the whole stereotyping of chinese people or uh, discrimination against chinese people since the outbreak of this virus and that's very clear uh, of course in the western world uh, in western europe uh, united states canada so you know it, it it's a really it could it's a it's a very uh, two-sided sort of sort of uh, role that the media plays essentially yeah, I think that's so important to look at the role that good media can play in helping us solve global problems, because, of course, we're so interconnected and our governments and our democracies are so big that we can't directly engage with everybody in the world. And so the media has a really important role and a really important responsibility in helping us solve these global issues. Um, something else that I found interesting that Professor Eves talked about in light of this is the role of the U.S., in responding to this virus and the importance of this virus on U.S.-China relations. Um, I think that especially right now in the international world, something that Professor Yus was talking about was how the international liberal order, which is basically the order that the whole global community lives under, is kind of collapsing a little bit because the U.S. is the head of this order and they created it. And without their leadership, our ability to respond effectively to problems like the coronavirus really diminishes. And I think that the media and the, the U.S., for instance, could play a big role in coordinating international cooperation. But if they turn inwards and they allow, you know, echo chambers through social media platforms to rule and cause people to turn to populist sentiments, is going to stop the ability to effectively cooperate in response to this. Yeah, definitely. I think that Professor Yu stressed a lot that China-U.S. relation and the United States we've seen 
through a lot of their policies towards China has turned towards a lot of inward focus. They are kind of closing borders. They are closing trade. They are effectively trying kind of to focus within the country at the expense of a lot of trade relations and relations between the states. And between China and the United States, you can see that this virus is really showing how the countries are really reacting. China is becoming a little bit more forthcoming than before. Before, in terms of SARS, they were trying to keep it very domestically under wraps and it was not really known the true figures of a lot of the information, but now they're a lot more forthcoming and creating a really effective response to the virus initially, as Professor Tybergen um, had mentioned. But also we can see how the U.S. is not taking a really active role in condemning the spread of misinformation or coordinating an effective response. They are kind of turning inwards. There are travel bans on uh, people coming from China. There is quarantining. There are different screening processes being put in place that are responses to the virus, but there's really kind of a need for a proactive role to respond to the virus and to tackle it as an international phenomenon. Because really, not only is it internationally relevant in terms of migration and people actually spreading the virus, but also through media and social media and kind of how people perceive it globally, how people perceive their reaction or effective responses to countering such a virus. Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial to to look at the uses the United States' uh, role in all of this. Uh, of course, as um, as Hannah stated, uh, they are the leader of the international liberal order, right? And to kind of to kind of I, I think it's important for the U.S. to kind of change their role uh, right now, especially with the upcoming election. If there is a change. Uh, if there is a change of government, I think it's important for them to start reversing uh, what's going on right now because other countries are looking upon the U uh, United States, seeing that they're closing off borders. And then as a result of that, other countries uh, aspire to maybe do the same. They're, they're looking at the U.S. seeing, okay, well, if they're doing this, then maybe we should as well. Um, Russia, actually, uh, from late January to early February, closed off, uh, closed off their far eastern border with China uh, in order to keep, uh, in order to contain the spread of the virus, right? And of course, you're also seeing a lot of now, uh, you know, Euroskeptics, uh, people who are generally against immigration in Europe, uh, you know, they're starting to get their voices heard uh, now because of the virus. And as a result of that, I think, you know, uh, it, it's important for the U.S. here to kind of change change their policy right now in terms of this so that uh, other countries may may also follow suit. And as a result of that, I think it would be much better. I think the world would be much more cooperative when it comes to all of this. So I know that we've been talking a lot about the role of countries in mitigating this problem and coordinating an international response, but what do you guys think is the role of individuals and what do you think we can do as individuals without relying on our countries or, you know, on putting all the burden on media, what can we do to mitigate these echo chambers that are created and to try to diversify the media that we see so that we can have a better idea of what's happening in the world? 
For sure. Uh, this is Julian. And I think that on a local kind of community level, I mean, we see that this coronavirus, though it seems like an international phenomenon, a lot of people perceive that some people perceive that they don't really care. It might not affect them. It's affecting other people, while some people are really concerned. I mean, if you go to a lot of the shoppers, drug marts on campus here at UBC or within Vancouver, a lot of the masks, a lot of those supplies are not there. There's They're already sold out. I'm seeing there's people selling masks, reselling them to people. It's definitely an international phenomenon. It's affecting people globally. And for in terms of information, you know, making sure that individuals on a local level are being informed as as possible by reading credible sources, I think is incredibly important. But also, even when exposed to some of those information that are pretty hysteric about people being infected in China, people, uh, cities turning into ghost towns, such as the images coming out of Wuhan, you have to take it a little bit with a grain of salt and you have to do your research. You have to take a look at other sources. Can they corroborate what those sources are saying? Is social media really credible? I mean, we have to take a lot of what we get in our information on a daily basis with a grain of salt and we have to do our due diligence in terms of getting credible information. Yeah, this is Roman. I, I totally agree with what Julian is stating here. I think it's also uh, super important just to understand uh, the other cultures in all of this. Right now, um, there was a problem uh, I heard in France about how people were afraid of Chinese people who were wearing masks because in Western culture, uh, when you wear face masks, that usually means that you are a carrier of a virus and you're trying to prevent its spread to other people. Uh, meanwhile, in China, people are mainly wearing those face masks, of course, to protect themselves uh, from the virus. And I think, you know, that's just a perfect example of how we 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 have to find we have to find uh, sufficient information, the right information about all of this. And to, you know, to always to always, as uh, Julian put it, uh, take things with a grain of salt. You know, if you if you read something right away about the virus, don't just think that it's automatically facts, you know. We we, the, the this is this is a virus that's become again so prevalent with uh, due to all the media. So I think for us, uh, it's super vital just uh, to if if we have information about it, uh, uh, if we have information about it, to have the right information about it. Yeah, I think that as individuals, we can be scared about it and that's natural and that's going to happen and you can also think that you don't care because it's you know somebody else's problem and you might also feel like a little bit racist or something like that and I think that we have to mitigate all those responses and we have to make sure that we're not getting stuck in our own thoughts and that we diversify our thoughts and it can be hard to seek out different sorts of media when you're used to looking at the same thing all the time but I think it's the perfect Example: This virus is a perfect example to show how important it is that we are aware of the social and political implications of what we're seeing and aware of our role as individuals, as communities in the international order and in as humans in the importance of cooperating to solve international problems because we are living in such an interconnected world currently. So for the podcast on the coronavirus, 
we had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Ty Bergen. And stay tuned for our next episode featuring our Global Voices segment. We will be back soon. And this is Global Get Down with myself, Julian. Myself, Roman. And me, Hannah.